Before we start today's show, I want to invite you to join my community of SaaS founders, agency owners, and others who are sharing tips, tricks, strategies, and tactics for creating successful cold outreach campaigns. It's a free group on Facebook called Cold Outreach Mastery, and you can get there by heading over to morgandwilliams.com slash community. And if Facebook isn't your thing, but you still want valuable cold outreach advice, head on over to morgandwilliams.com slash newsletter and put in your best email to get first in line for valuable resources that I share on how you can fill your calendar with sales meetings and your pipeline with opportunities. Now, let's start today's show. What if you could spend all of your time talking to prospects who you knew were 100% interested in what you had to offer? Instead of wasting time with tire kickers and price shoppers, you would only speak with people you knew you could bring the most value. Now, there's always been a debate in sales about what's better, inbound or outbound leads. Sure, inbound leads are easier to sell to, but the volume of inbound leads usually isn't as high as outbound. With outbound, you can more or less control your own destiny, but since you're starting cold, it usually takes much more time, energy, and education to successfully sell to these people. My guest today is going to show us how to have the best of both worlds, the high intent of inbound mixed with the scalability of outbound. We go very deep into implementation in this one, principles, strategies, and tactics, all that good stuff. By the end of this episode, you'll know exactly how to find interested prospects on demand get them to reach out to you and engage them in a sales conversation in a non-salesy way. You're not going to want to miss this one. See you on the other side. Lloyd Yip is the founder of Attract and Scale. He helps online entrepreneurs selling high ticket solutions and products scale from zero to multi six figures in profit organically in under a year. Lloyd, are you ready to dive in? Let's do it, man. Let's kill awesome. it. Awesome. Great to have you back. Yeah. Uh, how does your consultancy get results and what makes you different? Yeah. So the main focus is that we focus heavily on organic systems. So a lot of folks, they'll do like paid, ac- paid acquisition. A lot of folks, they'll like focus on sales by itself. For us, we focus on primarily organic client acquisition. So this is a combination of content marketing. This is a combination of outbound outreach and normal prospecting processes, but it's also sales as well. More or less anything that you can develop that doesn't require you to spend money on ads, we really focus our efforts on. So that's really where, you know, we spend a lot of time with our clients, helping them generate results and really where we specialize um, within all the different folks that out there could utilize, you know, sales and marketing services is that we help them in their earlier days within their business. So whether they're from, product market fit or pre-product market fit, even scaling through to getting their first $10,000 a month or bringing a company who's been stuck at 10, 15, $20,000 a month and getting them to $50,000 a month by implementing more rigorous structures and processes and automations. That's really where we spend a lot of our efforts. And once again, we do this with our clients um, without getting them to spend a dollar on ads. And that's, I think one of the biggest differentiators because a lot of people in the beginning they don't have the cash flow. They don't have the budget. They don't have the technical skill set that goes into making paid ads work. And it can be seen as quite a big risk. So by helping them leverage organic, but in a scalable way, it allows them to maintain significant profitability and margins in their earliest days of growing the business, which is really when you need the most cash flow because you frankly don't have much funding. You don't have investors coming into you yet. 
So I think in the earliest days, it's very important to be able to be revenue positive, but also profitable um, so that you can sustain yourself at the company and all of your employees. Awesome. Any other things that come to mind with that, with the person who's at that stage in the process, besides like the lack of cash flow and technical skill set that they're thinking that things that they really need at that point? Man, there is such a laundry list of items that someone at that earliest day, stage needs. But if I was to really try to focus on the most important, it's intentionality and the ability to prioritize. And I know that isn't quite as tactical as saying, oh, you got to focus on um, like writing copy or you got to focus on this or that. But the truth is most entrepreneurs fail because they try to do too many things in the beginning. And what happens is if you try to do too many different things, you tend to do all of those things really poorly. Mm. It goes with product creation. Some people want to create like multiple products for multiple industries, serving multiple audiences, solving many different problems. They'll probably fail in the early days. Or you have someone who maybe they have a really specific product solving a specific problem for a specific audience, but they're trying to sell it across 17 different channels. They're trying to blog. They want to start a YouTube channel. They want to do radio ads. They want to do cold outreach. So there are many different ways to do many different things. And all of those things are bad. <laughs> In the beginning, <laughs> focus on who you can serve and build something really great for that audience specifically. And then when you're going after them, utilize one, maybe two channels at most, because that way you can actually do good by that one audience and actually connect with them appropriately and effectively by really digging deep into a single channel instead of going broad across many channels, but very shallow. Who you can serve. Uh, that's the first thing you mentioned. And I know that for a lot of people starting out, that can be difficult to figure out who is my ideal customer? Who can I serve? When it comes to my, your mind, like what's the best like high level approach to that for identifying like your customer, how much thought do you put in it? How yeah. detailed do you get? Yeah. So just to clarify, are we talking about someone who legitimately has no idea or are we talking about someone who has an idea, but they don't have it validated, meaning they don't have any customers yet. Maybe they're just utilizing like a hunch. Who are we talking about here? Someone who has an idea, like a particular lane, but not sure like where to take it. Sure. For someone who has a hunch, what you got to go and do is test if that hunch is accurate. Cause a lot of people will assume their hunch is correct and they'll start building something but in reality no one cares and what happens is they spend a year and a ton of cash building whatever they build they go to the market and people more or less don't react and then your year is gone yeah a lot of that effort is gone and entrepreneurs who go through that man it is hard to continue after that it is very hard to stay motivated because there goes all of your life <laughs> that just passed right. by with what is a failed experiment. And the truth is they would have found out that it was a failed experiment if they just tried to validate that hunch before building. So what I talk about when I say validating is go and talk to your audience, go and talk to your prospects. If you're serving like moms between the age of 30 to 50, then before you build something for them, go and talk to them and make sure that whatever problem you think you're helping them solve is a legitimate problem that they have, that they're willing to spend money on solving, that they've tried to solve in the past, but it hasn't worked. They've tried other things and it's never panned out that they're willing to pay for it. 
Like those are some of the questions that you have to have answered by your audience before you invest a ton of time and money into building something. And if you don't do that, then you're really putting all your money on you somehow being like an innovative genius, like Elon or Steve Jobs, who can just like make ideas up out of thin air. And it just yeah. happens to be right all the time for some reason, because yeah. they're <laughs> exceptional, right? But the common person, the mere mortal, when they come up with ideas, most of the time, those ideas are either totally off or at least marginally off, but businesses are built within those margins. You build a business which at its core is a great idea, but is positioned the wrong way or is serving even slightly the wrong audience and things just fall apart. So validate first, de-risk by getting people to actually buy into the concept. Those should be your beta customers. Involve them in the process of product creation. And then by the time you launch a product properly, you already have a couple customers who've said, yeah, this thing makes sense. It works. In fact, you probably yeah. have already utilized it and they've given you feedback on, oh no, this part needs fixed, part works well, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, there's a lot that goes on before you actually scale a business or scale a product. Right? A lot of that stuff comes prior to scaling everything that I just mentioned. Yeah. I think the, the sexy idea is like, you just, you know, the guy has an idea. He's like, Oh, I've got it. You know, goes down in the basement for a year, tinkers away, comes yeah. out. I've got it. You know, Eureka, I got it. But it just doesn't work like that. No. So I like that. Like hat, like making a clay pot, right. Continuously working it, smoothing it out, you know, fixing where you messed up and using customers to help guide you. Okay. Awesome. And the campaign, uh, the process we're talking about today is something you've used in your own business. Yeah. Right? So let's do a recap of the customers. I guess we talked about the customers that you are kind of prospecting, but like what industries are they in typically and how are you building your list of people to talk to or where are you going to find these people? Yeah. So there's a couple of different methods. First of all, my audience, they're primarily B2B, but there are some B2C clients as well there. The most important thing is that they're selling something that's somewhat expensive. So it doesn't need to be like this $100,000 enterprise deal. It doesn't have to, although some of my clients are in that ballpark. They're selling some pretty significant enterprise solutions. But if you're even selling an offering, which is three, four or $5,000 in lifetime value, that's cool too. I have a ton of clients like that. So this ends up dialing down into coaches and consultants and agencies and also SaaS companies, which is my personal background. But yeah, like these are all more or less selling slightly higher ticket offers. And then being that they sell higher ticket offers and primarily a more online or digital service or solution, it enables them to start utilizing certain tactics that I'm very good at. Things like social media, things like content marketing, things like email. Um, those are the things that really align well with like a digital first business that sells like a scalable high ticket solution. So yeah, that is just to set the context. Awesome. And where do you find these people online? Yeah. So it really depends once again on the specific classification. I find that if I'm going after SaaS companies, I can very easily find them on both LinkedIn, email, and Facebook. So all three of those, if it's an agency, I can definitely find them as well in all three, email, Facebook, and LinkedIn. A consultancy, to be honest, every one of my solutions or my audiences that I serve can be found in all three channels. But I think you start looking at the more enterprise oriented companies being a bit more so on LinkedIn and email. 
in the more SMB versions are more so on Facebook. So if I was to build a campaign that was going after like the more upmarket spectrum of my audience, I would probably spend more time on LinkedIn and email, despite all three of those existing on all three of those channels. Gotcha. So you're looking at the nuances of not just the industry they're in, but also what level they're at, you know, enterprise, SMB, and kind of looking for the more on those channels. That's very important. That being said, I I do want to specify for a lot of people who feel like Facebook doesn't work in the B2B setting. Some of my biggest deals come from Facebook and their B2B clients. So the misconception that you can't find Facebook or can't find B2B clients or enterprise clients even on Facebook is a misnomer. And when I say using Facebook, I don't mean on paid ads. I mean organically. So today we can go into the process of finding some of these more B2B oriented clients organically, but I just wanted to first get that out of the way for people who are skeptical. And if you're skeptical, just listen on, we'll see what I mean. And I know at a high level, usually I ask at this point, what types of people you're going after, but your process is more about initiating that attraction and you have people coming to you. So let's talk about like at a high level, what this process looks like step-by-step and then we can go into each piece. Yeah, hundred percent. So the truth is as much as people want to feel as though outbound marketing or prospecting is the easiest and cleanest methodology of getting in front of people, they should also acknowledge that it's the most inefficient. First of all, it's totally linear. Meaning if you just stopped doing outbound prospecting one day, your lead generation or your lead flow more or less dries up entirely. Second of all, in 2020, buyers have evolved to want more of the evaluation to be done on their own time. They want to be able to research in their own time. In fact, before they even jump on a call and definitely before they make a decision, they want to have an adequate amount of information and knowledge about that particular vendor before they proceed. This was not always the case. If you look 10, 20 years ago, people just lacked the information. Internet wasn't quite as big of a thing. People couldn't do as much research on their own. It wasn't easy to find reviews. There weren't communities online that you can chit chat and talk about, oh, what do you use? What do I use? But now like the world is different. So to expect that you're gonna be able to consistently close meetings just by doing pure cold outreach, the trend is that that's slowly getting harder and harder and harder. And if you're closing, if all you do in your closing process is running your sales call and there's zero content, zero collateral, zero thought leadership to assist and facilitate, then you're definitely going to be sacrificing a lot of your conversion rate points. You're definitely not going to win as many deals because more or less, especially with a higher ticket sale, when there's such an involved process, if you look at the data, the data shows a process which leads to a successful sale at like $5,000 or more of lifetime value within the deal. That often takes like five, if not more hours of deliberating on the client's part. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're spending five hours on the phone with you, but they're thinking about the deal for five hours. And a lot of that time, they're going to be deliberating just in their own head, but why don't you help them with content and collateral and thought leadership and community and all that other stuff in order to make their process easier? Because otherwise they're just going to constantly be emailing you back and forth, or they're going to say, yeah, like I'm going to jump on another call and then another call and then another call. 
and you end up just having this like drawn out long, painful sales cycle with a high chance of getting ghosted. Sucks. So first of all, I wanted to set that stage in that the world has changed. The internet has fundamentally changed everything and people make decisions in a different way. People require more intentionality on their end and they're often looking to make their own decisions with as little intervention from the sales rep as possible. So now that you know that, how do you kind of flip things on its head? How do you inverse this? Well, the thing is content marketing has been known for a long time. If you're a sales rep, maybe you feel a certain type of way towards your marketing team. <laughs> There's that, you know, stereotype that sales marketers, we don't necessarily get along. I'm, I come from a sales background more than a marketing background. I've always been a salesperson before a marketer, but the truth is I see them as brother and sister. I see them as being fundamentally like two sides of the same coin where marketing is sales, but is one to many, where you talk to many people, even through one asset or one piece of content or one, whatever it is that the marketing team creates. And then sales is really taking the conversation over on the one-to-one -one side to get it over the finish line, right? right? How you really start to leverage this properly so that you can drive more pipeline is that you initiate the relationship utilizing content, right? whether it be blog posts or videos or white papers or articles, it doesn't matter. You begin it utilizing content the way that we've already known content is great at. However, in this model that I've been working on this last year, you don't let them take the initiative to come to you because the truth is content by itself more or less will begin a relationship, but it's very bad at getting someone to actually commit to starting a real conversation with you. Marketers, they're too obsessed with just making content and letting it sit, right? That's one thing that a lot of salespeople have a gripe with. Oh, marketers, they just like make all this like pretty visuals and it doesn't do anything for us. The truth is, if you look at a piece of content and let's say a hundred people engage with that piece of content, which is great because that piece of content can leverage and scale better than an email that you're sending. 99 of those people, even if they like it, will not reach out. Right. That's just how it is. It doesn't mean that they will never reach out though. In fact, if you look at their buying temperature, if you look at their ability or desire to talk to you, it's now higher than if you didn't talk to them at all, if you didn't have them see that content at all. But the truth is, even though all of them, all hundred of them now have a higher buying temperature, even though they all like you more, very few of them have actually booked a meeting. It's because content marketing by itself inherently is very bad at creating real leads because it's totally reactive. It doesn't proactively get them into the conversation. Sales on the other hand is very good at being proactive, but there's so little buying temperature that people just don't do it. They're like, I don't know who you are. I don't trust you. So how do you more or less amend both of the flaws that both sides have content being totally not proactive and cold approach and outreach being way too forceful and having zero buying temperature. Well, you hybridize it, which is really what I've utilized. You choose the channel where your audience spends the most time, right? Whether that be on Facebook or on LinkedIn, whatever it may be, you share helpful content you get that content in front of the right people so that they start engaging with it so that they start viewing it so that when they see it, they want to connect with you on LinkedIn or Facebook. They will not reach out for a demo. They won't ask you for a demo. Very few times they will, but they generally won't. 
Now this is where the sales side of things come in, right? The content has gotten you in the door. The content has built a bit of rapport and a bit of at least a trust factor. Very few meetings have been booked up until this point. That's when you specifically and proactively go after the people who engaged and you take them now that they have a little bit of a higher buying temperature and get them to the call, right? The people who wouldn't have reached out to you, but now they kind of like you, you're just going to reach out to them and be like, Hey, I noticed that you engaged. I noticed that you liked this piece of content. I noticed that you're also in this industry. What did you find helpful about this piece of content? Why did you engage? How has this impacted you? What other pieces of content should I create? Begin that dialogue. They're more than happy to have it now. Before you release this piece of content, they wouldn't have talked to you because they don't know who you are. But now that you have your in, now that you got your foot in the door at scale with hundreds, if not thousands of people, because one piece of content can touch that many people. Now you facilitate the conversation. And if you're good at having that conversation on the DMS inside LinkedIn or Facebook, you can very easily convert that into a meeting. And that's more or less what I do now. Consistent content creation, consistent content distribution to the right swimming pools, if you will, the swimming pools that contain all my audience members, and then a very set process, which takes anyone and everyone who engages with that content and brings them into my funnel. And that conversion rate significantly higher. If I reached out to the same amount of people, let's say I reached out to a thousand people using that strategy every single week, which is more or less what I'm doing right now. And I only reach out to them purely cold, maybe like 5% will get back to me, maybe but you pre-warm them with content and 40% will get back to you, right? So what would you rather do? Spend eight times as long and eight times as much effort doing cold outreach or maybe take like a day to write some content, learn how to distribute to the right places and then effectively 8X your outbound prospecting's effectiveness. That 8X, when you say, is that pretty much like the response rate for people who respond to you or engage with you? Yeah, so the thing is content is going to differ from person to person. The conversion rates are not necessarily sure. applicable for everyone, but I consistently see five times to 10 times more engagement on leads that have first seen some of my content than leads that do not see any of my content. And on channels like LinkedIn, but especially Facebook, where it's not known as a channel to do business development on, if all you do is like cold outreach, it's going to be very jarring for people. Yeah. I mean, LinkedIn's already been burned. There's a lot of people that are trying to utilize LinkedIn and they just send automated spam messages that sell and people are already sick of it. So your conversion rates there are dropping dramatically. Those people tend to get banned after a while as well because they just get flagged for spam. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you have a content strategy that's fused with your outbound strategy together, then you're going to warm up your leads to an extent that significantly increases your conversation rate. And another side benefit of this is that your content should always be aligned with your offering, right? Or at least somewhat aligned to the point where it's a feasible buyer that's going to resonate with that content. So not only are you warming up the prospects utilizing this methodology, but you're also having your prospects self-select themselves into fit because people that are not a good fit, in theory, they shouldn't even relate with your content, right? Like if you're a fan of basketball sure. and you write a blog about basketball, like the best, you know, player in the last 20 years or whatever, the only people who's going to like that post are people who are also basketball fans. Right. Like there's not going to be just some random person who loves badminton, who likes that post 
and then you ask them like, who's Michael Jordan? And they're like, huh, who, what? It's not going to happen. So your content is going to help you parse amongst the thousands and thousands of people out there who actually is a good fit. And then it also increases your conversion rate when you begin the conversation with them. I was going to say just something I've noticed with your content, because, you know, we've always been talking for a while um, and I've seen your posts, your content is super specific and yeah. very detailed. So anyone listening who's like thinking like content's very, you know, a broad term, but Lloyd's content is super specific yeah. and highly detailed. If you weren't in his target market, you'd probably be like, I don't understand half of this stuff. But if you Which are, intentional, yeah, right. That's exactly. I don't care if you're not in my target market. I don't care if you engage. Exactly. Like it just doesn't matter. In fact, I would rather have like 30 people engage who are within my target market than a thousand people engage weren't like, it's funny. There's a lot of people who want to be featured on Forbes or New York times or whatever. Right. Sure. But the truth is you being featured on a blog, which has a thousand subscribers, but it speaks to a really specific section of your audience that will often do better than being featured in the times, even though the times has like a million readers, but it's because out of those million readers, how many people actually are your audience? Not that many. So like content distribution is really critical. You got to know exactly where you are sharing your content so that it fits that audience. That audience needs to be your tribe, if you will. But then kind of to your point there, the content itself needs to be like a sniper rifle. That's the analogy that I like to use. My content works like a sniper rifle does because broad content they act more like a fishing net and it just brings in all this junk, all this like debris. Right. But when your content is highly, highly, highly specific and it solves a really granular problem that frankly, most people wouldn't care about, but the people who do care about it, that is your, that is your perfect tribe. Then this allows you to not have to waste time parsing out junk leads from good leads. Like anyone who engages my content, I more or less know that's a good fit. To give you an example, because I know this is a little bit vague, is the most recent post that I had was about how to scale from $15,000 per month to $50,000 a month organically. And in the post, I talk about how in the first $15,000 per month of your business, the organic strategy that you're using is very manual and very time consuming, but it works because frankly, your business isn't very sophisticated yet. It's a great system to utilize for getting three to five clients a month. And frankly, if that's all you wanted to do, continue with like a a manual and non-techie way of doing organic marketing. But a lot of marketers and a lot of business owners, they end up having this problem where when they get to $15,000 a month and they want to grow even beyond that, they're old, very manual, very, I'll do it myself style of organic marketing. So just like emailing people, for instance, it doesn't work anymore because they run out of time in the day. And that's a problem that they'll hit, right? They don't want to spend on ads because they know that it's expensive. They want to continue doing everything really profitably. So organic is the way to go, but they don't know how to do it in a way which is scalable. They're way too reliant on just doing everything themselves and manually. And it sucks. So that's such a specific problem that I solve for that. If you're not someone who cares about organic, you won't care. If you're not someone who is doing organic, that's specifically at that 15 K ish mark per month that is struggling with 
doing everything manually, you also won't care. It's so specific. But because I make a post like that, anyone who is that type of ideal client, that they're around that revenue range, that they're experiencing those specific problems, when they see that I pretty much write this four-step solution so that they can fix their problem, they're like, whoa, this speaks exactly to me. This speaks exactly to me. And in fact, when you have your content so laser sharp, this is when you start getting some inbound demo requests. I said earlier that very rarely are people just going to DM you and be like, yo, that was epic. That post, that video, that whatever you made, that was so insightful. I know typically they won't reach out to you, but when you make it laser sharp, a sniper rifle, that's when your likelihood of getting them to reach out to you increases. But regardless of whether they reach out or they don't reach out, it doesn't matter because once again, the idea of hybridizing is you're not going to rest on your hands to wait for them to come to you. No, as soon as they raise their hand and give a like or give a share or leave a comment or send you a friend request or send you a connection request, as soon as they give any indication that your content was good, you're not going to wait for them to reach out to you. You're just going to go after them proactively. That's how you hybridize. You give them a little bit of bait, not necessarily reeling them in quite yet. Just get them to be like, you know, encircling your fishing rod, getting them a little bit closer, get them curious. And then that's when you just get them. That's when you spear them. (laughs) Me, it's like the best of both worlds, the proactivity that a salesperson wants to have, but the ability to attract that a marketer has to have. You blend both together. Absolutely. I want to, touch on these real quick and then just like dig into each one to hit any fill any gaps for anyone listening here. So you're choosing the channel where your audience spends the most time. You are then creating content and posting it on that channel. Uh, You're going after the people who have engaged to get them into eventually and like starting a conversation with them in the DMS and then eventually converting that into a meeting at a high level. It's kind of like those four steps. Exactly. Exactly. And the next level beyond that, if you want to touch on it is how to scale that because that works really, really well. Inevitably you end up running against similar problems that someone who's just doing like manual outreach runs into where it's like not enough time in the day where there's like too many conversations where you have too much pipeline more or less. And I know this is such a great problem to have. Everyone here probably is looking at that as being like, what, why would there need to be another level? That's the exact level that I want to get to. Mm -hmm. But I speak, about this from a perspective of if you were to build your own company, that ends up being a constraint, right? If you're trying to scale past a certain point, but you can't even deal with more leads, then you more or less have reached your bottleneck. And that's what I was talking about even five minutes ago. I was giving you this example of this piece of content that I wrote, which was precisely about that, where someone hits $15,000 per month using organic, but they can't do any more because everything is too manual. And they can't deal with more leads. They can't deal with more sales calls. They can't deal with more content posting. They can't deal with it because they're doing it all themselves. So the next level of that is to more or less automate this entire process or as much of the process away as you can. So that would mean things like if you were a business owner, hiring someone to manage a lot of your conversations for you, right? It would mean maybe even hiring salespeople to deal with more of the sales calls. I recognize that if you're a salesperson, this might not make as much sense because you are literally that person that closes the deal, but you can always think of like better ways that you could also facilitate this conversation. Like how can you create better processes and systems inside your own workflow, which allow you to manage more conversation on the day to day. Right. Sure. I think even hire virtual assistant. This is a crazy hack, right? Even as a sales rep, 
maybe it's worth for you to go and talk to someone in the Philippines or in Indonesia, and maybe you can hire them to offload some of your work. Because when you break down your list of activities on the day-to-day, not all of it is spent on talking to customers. Some of it's admin work, some of it's boring paperwork. So break it down. What's the stuff that maybe you can actually offload by just hiring a virtual assistant? Don't think of your sales job as just you working a job. Think about your sales job as you being the CEO of your own role. And sometimes being the CEO of your own role means spending a little bit of money on additional help or additional tools. But if that time or money saved or saves you a ton of energy, which you can then reallocate to doing more of what matters, which is closing deals and prospecting, then perhaps you've ascended beyond just a sales rep. Now you're like really the CEO of your own role. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously if you're a founder listening to this, this should be how you're thinking to begin with, right? How can you offload the least important stuff or at least the least skill oriented stuff in your day to day, remove it so that you can do more of what actually matters. And for me, it's like, I've more or less offloaded all my content distribution, um, all of my DMing back and forth, prospecting business development management of the conversations. I'm still responsible for content creation because to me, I think content creation and copywriting is really what makes this entire strategy tick. So I'm not really willing to outsource that, but as of right now, I'm really trying to offload as much as I possibly can, because that way I can take the system, which works at a small scale and multiply it. When people say that organic doesn't scale, it's usually because they're still doing it all themselves. And then as soon as they reach the limit of their own organic business development, they more or less assume that it's been capped out. When in reality, you can just have other people managing it. And that's how you scale organic. That's how you have a system which is just as profitable as any organic system is, but it's as repeatable and predictable as paid ads. That's really the secret sauce. With, uh, to start at the top with channel selection, it seems like pretty cut and dry, right? Hey, there's a few people from a few places where people hang out. Um, I know you're very active in Facebook groups. So I didn't want to mention that, like finding Facebook groups, um, any other nuances to the channels or is it pretty much just like, Hey, I'm going to post on these platforms and, and take it. Yeah. So LinkedIn is like super easy because LinkedIn is more or less just a database. You just use sales navigator find some of your accounts, some of your ideal fit leads and add them. And as you add them, as you connect with them, you could very easily just begin the conversation there. And this is obviously a little bit more cold. So I would practice subtlety. If you were to do like cold LinkedIn outreach, don't make it overly salesy, make it more conversational. But the nice thing is even if you don't book a call immediately from your cold outreach, um, now they're in your network. And if it's the right people, then it's the people that will also like your content. So as you're adding people cold, you book them. If not, they'll see your content. They'll see your face again and again. They'll see your name again and again. They'll see your content again and again, and then come back to come back to you. It's funny. Like I have clients that I connected with on LinkedIn years ago, like two, three years ago. And the initial attempt to get them into a phone call didn't pan out. But after they saw my face pop up again and again in their feed with my content, they come back to me later. Mm. So that happens all the time on LinkedIn. So yeah, sales navigator and the content sharing on your LinkedIn is more on your personal wall, not your company wall. Company walls are more or less useless. Also (laughs) LinkedIn groups are useless, except if you're using it as a filter inside sales nav. So that's something for everyone else to know. 
Facebook is a bit different. With Facebook, you can't really use you know, filtering the way that SalesNav allows you to. So instead you use Facebook groups, Facebook groups are really dope. Um, to be honest, Facebook doesn't advertise much for its own platform because it's already this universally accepted social media platform. But during this most previous Super Bowl, they advertised Facebook groups, mm-hmm. which I thought to be pretty interesting. Clearly they're trying to promote it as being this, this new like digital living room. And that's more or less what it is. I think um, it's where communities of people come in to hang out people who are passionate about certain topics. And if you were to try to find a community of just like software founders, it's very easy. I'm in a lot of those communities. If you wanted to find a community of um, like bodybuilders, very easy to find those communities. If you wanted to find a community like CEOs, you can do that. There's almost no community of people that you can't find just by typing it into the Facebook search bar and then navigating to the group section. And you'll see that some of these community communities have tens of thousands of people. And that's really the mark of a good group. Like you want to have enough people in the group you want though within the group that the engagement is there. So consistent content sharing by everyone, but quality content, not just spammy links dropping. Cause if the group is just a bunch of people sharing links and no one's talking to each other, then that's a pretty bad group. In that sense, I would actually consider really good engagement between members to be more important than just group size. Cause there's definitely a lot of group size or like big groups out there that don't do anything, but a combination of the two is very critical. You want the groups to be private. There's a lot of public groups actually out there and they more or less all suck. So the private groups are the ones that you don't see any of the content or the discussion until you join. So a little bit more work because then you got to go and actually join it and let them accept your request and whatnot. But the truth is it doesn't take very long and you can generally know even on the surface, whether or not a group is good just by yeah. looking at their metrics, the metrics being how big the group is and how often people are posting per day. That's a good leading indicator. And then once you get in, you do additional research you realize, Oh, here's the vibe of the group. Here is what people typically are talking about. And from there you go and start producing some content and that's more or less it on Facebook. Yeah. You said like a couple thousand, I would say minimum is like a thousand and a bit. Like you can sure. join some groups out of a couple hundred, but even if they were really engaged, the volume is just not really there to move the needle. But sure, that's not necessarily like an impossibility though. There, there are groups that I've been in that are just a few hundred people, but everyone's really engaged. So it's not necessarily about the size of the audience. It's more about the engagement, but obviously... If, if there's two groups and they're both highly engaged and one is just bigger than the other, you're going to pick the bigger one. Sure. Yeah. Cool. So we got LinkedIn, Facebook, anything else there on channels or those are like the two big ones on the note of other channels. I'll be very honest. I don't use email nearly as much as I used to just because with email, it's harder to have that community or content distribution sure. that I utilize. It makes it very hard to hybridize inbound and outbound because email by its nature is so outbound, but there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. The way that I hybridize it still is in the email, I'll just attach a PS. So what the PS contains is all of my content that I want them to read anyways. A lot of the times people will have like the body of the paragraph be really short, right? Which a lot of people feel as though it's going to improve the conversion rate because people get lazy and they don't want to read. 
But the downside of having a very short email is that there's often enough not to go off of. And sure. the prospect isn't sure, like what I'm going to even learn in this call. What's even the value? Mm-hmm. There's always trade-offs. More content means more clarity into what you do, but less people want to read through it. And then the less content, more people will read through it. But a lot of them will just come out and they're like, I don't even know why I should talk to this person. You gave me like one sentence. I have no idea what you do. So the way the PS works is it blends both best of both worlds to me, where you keep the body of the paragraph fairly short. You just want to intrigue them or excite them enough that they read the entire thing. And then their eyes scan down to the PS and the PS more or less says like, Hey, I didn't want to put this up top just because, you know, like it would get challenging for you to read, but if this was at all interesting and you're not yet comfortable with talking to me, well, here's like some content for you. Here's like a blog post. Here's an ebook. Here's a webinar. Here is a Facebook group. Here's a, whatever you want to share with them. And maybe by giving them value and saying, Hey, check this out. If you're not totally sure about running on a call with me yet, they will then earn, they'll give you the right to earn that trust. And that's happened a lot to me. I even do that on LinkedIn right? Where part of my campaign is that if they haven't responded to two or three of my messages, I'll more or less just be like, Hey, I get it. I'm a stranger. I don't really deserve anything from you, but here's this webinar that I created. Check it out. If you like it, maybe we can chat, but if not, that's cool. And I've had a ton of people who just like watch the webinar because they don't want to actually talk to me, but then by the end of it, because the webinar is constructed in a certain way. And obviously on the webinar page, I have plenty of calls to actions to get them to book a meeting. They still book a meeting. I'm not going to always force them to immediately make a decision on whether or not they want to talk to me on the phone. Right. That's a jarring decision to make for many people. So on email, that's more or less how I do it. It's a little bit trickier because you can't warm them up with content in advance before pitching the phone call, but it's still a good way to at least combine that content and thought leadership piece into your outbound. Um, That being said, if, if you do, have the ability to combine email with some of these other channels. What you can do is create content on medium or Reddit or Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. And once someone engages, maybe you can scrape their emails and there's plenty of tools out there that allow you to scrape. And then as like your proactive outbound approach, you could just email them and be like, Hey, I noticed that you checked out so-and-so piece of content. What's up? So this is just like a slight twist on the earlier method, which is share content on Facebook, DM them on Facebook or share content on LinkedIn, DM them on LinkedIn. Well, I mean, in theory, you can share content on Facebook or LinkedIn and then just message them on email too. Mm -hmm. You can combine a message to them on email with also a DM on LinkedIn and Facebook. So you can kind of have like a multi-pronged outbound approach as a response to their initial engagement. If all you were doing is cold email, then it's still going to be more outbound, except you can infuse a bit more content into it in the, in the PS so that at least you're giving them like a second out, if you will, right. in the situation that they're not fully safe yet. But the main call to action is most likely still going to be, you know, in the body of that email, a call. Got it. Content. You've got some incredible content that you post on Facebook is where I see most of it. I want to go into how you create this content and like what that process is because it's very detailed, very specific and very powerful and solves, helps people solve a problem. So I want to touch on that. Yeah. So I actually have a couple frameworks that I more or less just use every time. 
And it's something that I teach to my clients as well, because a lot of my clients, they come to me for the purpose of learning how to create really high converting content for social media. And there's a couple elements. First and foremost, I think that it's better to give away the farm than to hold things close to your chest. And there's this fear, right? Like, oh, if I give all the content away, if I give everyone, every, all my tactics away for free, wouldn't that prevent people from coming to you? No, because there is always going to be a level of complexity that a written article or even a video will not be able to go through. And that's really where your program or your offering comes in, right? That's where your software comes in. That's where your actual coaching comes in. What can they really learn in a seven minute piece of content? There's always going to be a gap. So I see it like Costco. You go to Costco, you get some free samples. You like it. It tastes good, but you only get so much. And if you want more, that's when you set up a call. That's when you download the more premium asset. That's when you join the group. That's when you do whatever the next step is in the process. So the first philosophy that I have when I'm creating content is that I'm willing to give away a ton. I'm willing to give away a lot. And that's why my content pieces are so long. It's because they're more or less ultimate guides to doing something. Now, from a stylistic perspective, I don't always just make it a dry ultimate guide. Sometimes I make it like a personal journey. I've had content pieces where it says like how my first business failed after a year of hardship and how those learnings helped me now scale my business to like multi six figures. Per those year. are my favorites. Right. Stories, and yeah. it's like an ultimate guy, but it's kind of hidden in this like diary format mm-hmm. where it more or less goes through my actual experiences. And it's like a self case study kind of. Sure. So it's not much as much instructional in intention as it is more like an exploration of my own process and journey. What ends up happening is people obviously learn a ton from it and they also get to see my personality a little bit because I read it in my own voice. It's not dry. It's not stuffy. It's very much like relatable because I'm always going to talk about my failures in the beginning. And it's the same failures that a lot of other people have, but they also see the other side of it and what I actually did to get success. And that breeds this level of credibility that I think a lot of other people don't breed because they don't go deep enough into their results or their tactics that's something that is fairly consistent. I always try to integrate a little bit of my personality into my content. I try to integrate my own experience into my content, even when it's just like a supposedly dry ultimate guide. But that's really the style that I have. If anyone here like knows who Neil Patel is, Neil Patel is one of the marketers that I really respect. And he always talks about making epic content. And one of his favorite things is also to make an ultimate guide where like, he often has these like 2000, 3000, 4000 word articles and not necessarily saying you should make something that long, but you want your content to stand out. A lot of people, they kind of put in the minimal amount of effort and they make something that's like 350 words. And what it does is it maybe helps with SEO, maybe. But ultimately, if you're looking at conversion content, that stuff doesn't incite any confidence at all with the readers. The reason why like most Facebook groups out there are a sea of unhelpful articles and links. And then the one shining beacon is like my post that gets 400 interactions is because I just care more. Like I care more about educating the audience about a specific topic that I know they don't know about. And that no one else is really willing to give them the insight on. 
Or if they are, they're putting it behind the paywall or they're giving it in such sparse detail that people can't even discern. Is the writer actually intelligent or are they just ripping this off some other blog post they read? Right. So you want to give enough depth that people very clearly understand, oh, this person knows their stuff, right? Not necessarily make it so long or so like technical that people get bored or overwhelmed by it. You don't want that either. So it is a fine balance. And that's something else that I work on with my clients. Like, how do you find that fine balance between oversharing and being like way too specific and, and just like, whoa, that is way too much <laughs> versus being not enough that people aren't really getting a sense of your personality or where value lies. So like I said, the content creation process to me, copywriting is the most important part of my business. Um, it's the last thing that I would outsource or offload. Anything else is easier. Like the sales calls are easier. Managing my conversations and booking meetings are easier. Copywriting is so integral and it's so related to your audience who you're serving, the problems that they're experiencing, your own personality, um, your own experiences that I think, like if you can master that, it makes everything easier. You had, I think you mentioned just like at a high level, what that breakdown looks like when you're have the flow of your articles, like your failure tactics and then results. Yeah. Yeah. So because I have a couple of different frameworks, it depends on the framework that I'm utilizing. For instance, there's one archetype that I use where it's my personal journey. That's like one archetype that I use. Okay. Another archetype that I use is I talk about how something in the world today is broken. So this is less about me, but this is more like my perception of how the current way of doing something is wrong. In that particular type of post, I talk way less about myself, but I talk more about, hey, here's how like 99% of the world does something. And here's why that way of doing it is like totally messed up and broken. And you hear the consequences of what happens if the world continues to do it. But at the same time, this is now the opportunity for the people who do not do it this way, because the people who do not do it this way will see these types of gains. And then I go into how to do it the right way instead of doing it the wrong way. So that's kind of the framework for that archetype. Whereas if it's more of like my personal story, if that's the framework archetype that I'm using, I'll always talk about how I used to fail, why I failed. I'll dive a little bit into my motivations. And then I'll talk about what I did from that point on to overcome those failures. And then that's where a lot of the tactics are thrown in but I'm also going to like pepper a ton of anecdotes and stories and emotions throughout the entire piece there. It depends. I have literally four archetypes that I use and I just give them to my clients and they can more or less just use it like Mad Lib style where they fill in the blanks a little bit and they incorporate their own business into it. Yeah. What are the other two? What are they like at a high level? What are they like? Or what are they? The other one is like ultimate guide. So okay. of the four, that is definitely the driest, but it's also the most tactical. So I literally have a post where it's just about like, here's how I closed one and a half million dollars in the last three years with cold outreach. And I literally just break down the exact thing. I provide the spreadsheets. I give the copy that I use. It's really, really specific. And I've actually had people come to me saying, yeah, I made like $10,000 off that one post alone. <laughs> right. That's usually going to be the longest type of post, but when people read it, they're like, I can't even believe this person give, gave this away for free. It almost makes no sense. <laughs> but inherently, those are the easiest people to then push into a call. And there's always going to be more stuff that they don't know that you haven't told them. That's how sure. always, you built that trust. Yeah. Because there's no way that someone could write this 
epic piece of content without understanding their their solution or that specific problem better than anyone else. Kind of like you know um, when you see it. Exactly, exactly. And then another one, and this is kind of like an offshoot of your own personal journey, kind of like hybridizing it with calling out how people in the world are doing something wrong. Remember, like the, yeah. one of the archetypes that I told you before is like going through how something in the world is broken that no one realizes for some reason. Well, the last archetype is really analyzing your failure. So there's the analyzing of your own failure and reverse engineering how you overcame it. That's one archetype. And then the other archetype is more like your personal diary, right? There's a really specific difference. One is talking about your failure and how you overcame it. Another one is more about how you had a big goal and then the specific roadmap that you went to achieve it. So one is more like positive looking. It's like, hey, I chased this really big dream. Here's how I did it. And then the other one is like your lessons from the failures. So they're both about you. They're both going to have a ton of emotion in your own personality. But one is like recovery in success. And one is more like neutral into really high levels of success if I was to kind of position it. So those are the four archetypes. It's easier to explain when I have my spreadsheet in front of me. Sure. No, I mean, that was a great explanation of that. But yeah, like I, I more or less just use um, variations of those four archetypes for every one of my posts. Awesome. How long does it take you to write a post? I don't know, like 20 minutes. No. Really? Yeah. Well, I've done well, it so you, many You've done a formula, yeah. And I, fo I follow the same formula every time, or at least I follow one of those four. And it's also just like a, a lot of practice. Yeah. And even if I go off formula, which I do sometimes, I can just like wing it and I just know what works. At this point, do you just know like what kind of hooks you want to use or like, like what kind of stories you want to pull? Do you like yeah. write things down? Okay. You just kind of like, okay, I remember that. And write sometimes it. I get inspiration. Like I'll just be going through my business and I'll be like, whoa, I got to write about that. I'll experience it in real time. And I just feel like I have to share. Another thing is I've served my audience now for long enough that I just know what they like. So it's always harder to create content in the early days because you don't know what your audience likes yet. But once you get enough positive feedback and reinforcement from your audience and they say, oh man, like this topic is great. Then you just make more about that stuff. And part of the benefit as well of running a community. And I know that we didn't talk too much about running your own community in this call, in this podcast. Part of what I do is I run my own Facebook community and it has almost 2000 people now. And I always just like dialogue with them. I'm just asking like, Hey, what do you guys want to see out of me? If I make content next month, what should it be about? I'll have polls. I'll just straight up talk with them. And they'll more or less give me a couple of indications of, yeah, like we want to help with this, want to help with that. And that also guides me to know what more content I should create. But ultimately it's still up to me, right? Like right. there's that quote from, yeah, Henry Ford. And he was like, if I just gave people what they wanted, they would have asked for more courses. <laughs> right. So to an extent, take the consideration, the feedback of your customers in mind with future content ideas, as even with your product, but be willing to risk some things if you have enough of a hunch that you're probably right. And I know this kind of flies in the face of what I said to kick off the podcast where you should always look for feedback, mm -hmm. but there's a time and a place in the beginning, get a lot of feedback. But if you've been serving your audience for years and you know what they like, and you already have a proven business model, you get a bit more chance to experiment, to take risks, to build something because you just know this makes sense for your audience. Cause 
in the past you've already succeeded for them in so many different levels. So yeah, um, that's what I would say. And yeah, with, with content, I, I like to be able to innovate and one up myself all the time too. That's what it's all about for folks who don't necessarily have the ability to create content themselves, or maybe you don't want to, you just want to do more of like the proactive outreach side of things. Just utilize your marketing team's content. Hopefully you have a marketing team that is worth their weight <laughs> or salary or whatever it is and leverage their content. Yeah. Awesome. Going after people who have engaged with the content or reaching out to them, you're messaging people who have right liked it, shared it, um, shown some sort of interest in it, have basically raised their hand in some way, DM'd yeah. you. What does that process look like for starting that conversation or, or how do you begin that and follow through? Yeah, it depends on the channel and it also depends on the way in which they engage. So let's stick to LinkedIn and Facebook for now. If it's Facebook, the couple of ways that they can raise their hands, if you will, they might like the post, they might comment on the post, they might send you a friend request, they might send you a direct message. Obviously, if they just DM you, it's very clear that they want to talk. So just converse. Whereas when you're getting a bit more of like a subtle hand raise and they don't DM you, this is going to be the 90%. And you're just going to more or less reach out to them and be like, Hey, saw that you engaged with a piece of content. I take it. This is important to you. Like, where are you at in your journey or some variation of that? Obviously customize it to your business. And generally speaking, they'll just respond and you can have a chit chat that way from there you would qualify them in the, in the DMS, make sure that they're actually a good fit for you to even jump on a sales call with. And then once you've qualified that they're the right fit and that they have problems you can solve for suggest a meeting and then get the meeting booked that way. If it's LinkedIn, it's more or less the same to be honest, like LinkedIn and Facebook to me, it's just like instant messenger really like whether they're engaging with content on Facebook or they're engaging with content on LinkedIn. Once they do, you just send them a connection request. You start the conversation. I don't treat the DMs that differently, to be honest, from platform to platform. Gotcha. Pretty much you're just going off the conversation, yeah. doing some light discovery, right? Like you said, qualifying them and then saying, hey, let's chat if it makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. That one seems pretty straightforward. It seems like a lot of the heavy lifting has been done with the content piece. Yeah. They're already ready. It's so funny. I, I get all these people telling me, that they've been doing cold outreach for months on social media, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on whatever channel. And it's just like pulling teeth, getting people to respond. Whereas like, mm -hmm. I don't even relate to that problem anymore because everyone who talks to me, they want to talk to me. Right. Like, like there's some people who are just thanking me for reaching out. It's hilarious. Right. And it's because I've laid the groundwork. I enter the conversation being on the pedestal. Most salespeople are putting the prospect on the pedestal. Right. feel it. Whereas when I talk to customers or prospects, they are more eager to talk to me than the other way around. Sure. And I know that sounds bad. It's not that I'm not like super down to talk to them, but eventually like when you're generating 20, 30, 40 conversations a day, it gets normal. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, I don't even handle a lot of my conversations anymore. My, my team does it. So it's allowed me to be able to take a bit of a step back and this is all organic. Right. Right but this scales properly because I have the infrastructure, which gets the, the attraction and the inbound. And then I have the infrastructure, which allows me to then process those people at scale. Before scaling, like um, how many 
posts would you make like a week? What did like the numbers look like in terms of how much you were posting and yeah. like, conversations? Yeah. So that also depends on the channel. If you're on LinkedIn, you can do three, four, five a week. Some people even do it every day. It's up to you. Mm -hmm. On Facebook, you can actually have even more than that because on Facebook, um, you're not posting in your own wall. You're posting in Facebook groups. So mm -hmm. what you post in one Facebook group, people won't see in another Facebook group. So let's say you're in 20 groups, right? You can in theory share three pieces of content every day to three Facebook groups and just do it every single day. Like each day there's another three groups that gets a different post. So you start realizing that on Facebook, the total volume can be a lot higher. You might be thinking those like, whoa, like how do I come up with all that content? Well, the truth is on Facebook, you're just reusing content. If you're in 20 different groups and you have say five assets, well, each group should see all five of those assets. So you're cycling through and you're reusing. And that is what allows you to take what is honestly not that much content, just a couple pieces and more or less have it be your entire store of content for months. And that's what I do. In the beginning, I used to share a lot more content. I used to share even like four or five articles per day to different groups. But what happened is over time, my process got to a point where I was getting so much engagement out of even one post that I just didn't even have a bandwidth to deal with all of those leads. So now I, I more or less share maybe three or four posts per week. That's it. I used to be sharing like 30, but now it's down to three or four because on one post, I might get 400 engagements or interactions and I don't want to waste them. So I need my team to be able to follow up with each and every single one of them. So even for four posts a week now is enough for my team to feed themselves. And that allows my pieces of content to stay more evergreen because now those like five pieces of content for me to get through all 20 groups. If I'm only posting like three or four a week, those like five posts are going to last like a quarter, two quarters. Mm -hmm. So people always ask me how much time do I spend on content marketing? It's like barely, like I barely spend time writing barely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're spending that time or well, you were spending your personal spend, time following up. Yeah. My team does that. Right. Right. Yeah. Previously you were following up. Yes. Yeah. Okay. The last piece that reminds me your qualification process when you're having that conversation, Yeah. any like finer points there that would help out listeners? Well, I mean, your qualification process is going to be very unique to yours. Right. Uh, so mine is obviously very specific to the way that I like to bring in my clients, but mm -hmm. I tend to look at how mature they are as a company. So I don't like to work with clients that are above a certain threshold in terms of their revenue. Mm -hmm. Typically can't afford my services or I just can't help them at a high level. Like they're, they're too early to even get a ton of value out of what I teach. And then after that, I also care about their intention. Do they care about organic at all? Cause if they don't probably not the best fit because all I do is organic. Mm -hmm. So even if they technically are mature enough, if their intention is not even bringing organic into the picture, then there's really no point. And after that, it's really just how are they currently doing organic if they are. If they're not doing it well, I can help. If they're doing it well, but they want it to be better optimized, I can help. If they're down to do organic, but they're already doing it really well, probably disqualify because I can't help them. So the way that I look at it is like it's a decision tree. There's three or four primary decision-making criteria or qualification criteria that I need them to check off. 
And what I've done for my team is I've built them this like template, the script, if you will, where they go off and they can ask certain questions, which allow them to check off the box for each of these major criteria. And if by the end, all three or four are checked off, then they get to ask the question. Mm-hmm. Do you want to jump on the phone call? If they don't actually check them off, um, in my decision tree, I have like alternative things that they can do. Send them webinars, send them content, disqualify altogether. Yeah. Love but the that. calls are reserved for the people who check off every one of my qualification criteria because I don't want to jump on a call where someone is not a good fit. Your calls are for everyone who's met that criteria and then alternatively you send people someplace else. Is that just really like to send them some content like, Hey, going to the next level with this wouldn't be a fit for you, but check this out. This could help yeah. you be blank. Warming them up for the future. I also have some like more automated products that I can sell that doesn't require a okay. sales call. So this is especially for like very early stage entrepreneurs. I end up having a lot of early stage entrepreneurs that message me. So I don't want to like not help them, but I don't want to jump on a phone call either. So I give them this like automated webinar that they can check out. Yeah. So it's a good way to just keep uh, that nurture path going with people. Yeah. That's powerful. Scaling when someone's ready to get to that place where they can scale, which I assume is just to where they're maxed out, right? They're like, I can't do this. I can't do any more than this level that I'm doing. I need to do something different. Where do you go from there? Yeah. So it's pretty case by case, depending on the customer, depending on where their bottlenecks are, you have to remove those bottlenecks. So if the bottleneck is, oh, like too many sales calls, well, easiest ways to solve that is obviously hiring a sales rep. You know what? I'd be hesitant to say that's easy because you got to train them. You got to, but I mean, okay. So the most obvious way though, the most obvious way to solve that is a sales rep. A slightly less obvious way to solve that though, is to just decrease the sales cycle. Cause if you decrease sales cycle, you'll have less sales calls. So by decreasing the sales cycle, um, how do you do that? Sometimes it's having like a webinar funnel or a nurture campaign funnel on marketing automation. So like I said earlier, sometimes it takes five hours or more of deliberation on the customer's end before they can decide. This might manifest itself as like three or four sales calls before you close a deal. Or if you have like a webinar sequence or additional content that they can consume on their own time, you might alleviate that pressure and get that call closed down to like maybe one or two calls. That's one thing that you can do, which doesn't require hiring of a sales rep. You can also tighten your qualification criteria so that you just have less calls in the first place. Like I'm more picky about who I even jump on a call with. And yeah, you might lose some sales for that reason, but you also might save a ton of time, which might be worth it. So a couple ways to, to remove the bottleneck of too many calls. If it's like too much prospecting or too much biz dev, then you offload that by hiring someone, right? Who can manage your conversations and prospecting for you. Or if it's not enough leads because you're at like that constraint, you can, yeah, you can start leveraging um, some additional strategies like building a community, having like a virtual assistant manage more content distribution for you. So there's tons of things that you can do. Ultimately scaling comes down to removing the specific bottlenecks that you have. So it's pretty unique. Every part of the process, there's a way to remove the bottleneck. Even um, not enough leads, like creating a template like you have for creating content so you can create it faster if it takes you a long time. Well, I mean, content creation is very rarely the bottleneck though. Content creation is very rarely the bottleneck. It's usually something else. 
if it is the bottleneck, then yeah, having enough processes that allow you to batch create content and be efficient with it is, is great. But typically people break down somewhere else in the journey. It's usually a content distribution problem or a lead management problem where they can't deal with all the inbound flows or they can't jump on all the sales calls. Mm -hmm. So when I work with clients, it's more about like, how do we alleviate those stuff, that stuff, gotcha. because it's more likely to be the bottleneck. Gotcha. I want to give the audience some numbers in terms of, can you think of a time when, you know, you posted something, got crazy engagement and just, you know, it led to, you know, this many conversations, this many uh, calls and kind of what the result was of that. Or just yeah, I've maybe definitely had a couple posts where like a single post might net me twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 for sure. Just like direct line of, Oh, that person engaged, turned into a sales call, bought my stuff. So it's like fairly easy to just like attribute. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like if we're ignoring vanity metrics, cause obviously likes and comments don't really mean anything unless it contributes to sales. Sure. So yeah. Like I would say there have been posts that have led me to having like double digit calls, like 10, 15 calls out of one post. And then out of those calls, yeah. Like closing a couple deals here and there easily brings you up to like 15, 20, $30,000. So yeah obviously it happens over time. And the cool thing is I reuse a lot of my posts, right? So if I was to share one post on a particular group, it does really well. I can just take that same post and share it to another group. And there you go. Makes me another like 10 grand. Mm -hmm. So it ends up being like a very, very effective thing. What really sticks out to me is the, how detailed your process is and how well you know it. And this just, you have this down in such succinct steps and at every step of the way you know exactly what the end result is how to get people to the next step and I can tell you put a lot of thought and care into this process which I'm sure your prospects and customers can feel right yeah yeah I think part of the reason why my content and uh, my community is so engaged with me in my own group is because I spend a lot of effort into the copy Mm -hmm. I really try to integrate tactics that they've never heard of before, but I also try to integrate like vulnerability. I'll talk about my mistakes. I'll talk about things that I'm frustrated at. I'll talk about my failures. I'm trying to bring them into my decision-making process. Um, like recently I rebranded and I asked them like, Hey, I have these like couple name ideas. What do you guys think is best? Mm -hmm. Right. Or I'll ask them like, Hey guys, I want to make this webinar, this live webinar. I have a couple topics that I want to talk about, but which one do you guys want to talk about? So I really try to incorporate them as much into my thought process as possible. And it shows in the content. I think that's why people like it. Like I don't run the biggest group out there, but I think I run a group which has a close knit community where people sure. are actually helping each other and they're, and they're engaged. And that's all I'm asking for. Absolutely. Last question I had was on the post, like 10 to 15 calls from one post, closing two to three deals. How many conversations do you have in the DMs that yield that 10, 15 calls? Oh, like that metric is pretty hard to track now, to be honest. If, if my virtual assistant was here, he could probably give you a better indication there because uh, he manages all my content, um, all, my, all my posts. Honestly, it does fluctuate a lot because I'm experimenting a ton with content topic. So what ends up happening is like, you might have a particular post, which has like really good engagement, 
but the engagement is primarily with like earlier stage entrepreneurs. So mm-hmm. less of them get to the call stage because I'm disqualifying them, but a lot of them get access to my webinars, mm-hmm. which the webinars themselves might still end up generating revenue, but it's like low ticket revenue instead of high ticket revenue. And then you might also have a post that very quickly generates me five meetings, but it doesn't get me very many new members into my Facebook group. Whereas another post doesn't get me any new meetings, but then it gets like a hundred people into my Facebook group, which ultimately in months down the line converts into more revenue. So like attributing it is actually very hard. I find Mm -hmm. you can attribute like the basic stats, right? Like I'm always tracking likes and comments Mm -hmm. and that will almost always be some sort of proxy for like the number of um, meetings that you book. But yeah, like from that into actually closing a deal, there's more nuance that goes into it because it depends on who the content topic is really meant for. So I wish I could give you a more uh, specific answer to that, but there's a lot of nuance that I find goes into it. It's not as cut and dry as like, oh, more likes and more comments equals to more of this or that. Sure. It's more about generating that engagement, starting the conversations, and then just kind of like going from there. Not like, you know, this post has to get this many engagements or, you know, I have to get this many conversations for this post. It's just putting it out there and then, you know, hitting up who engages and then just kind of getting a call from there. doesn't seem yeah. like it's, yeah. Well, at the end of the day, the, the numbers will balance out, right? Mm-hmm. If, if a piece doesn't do very well, if it only gets like five comments or likes, inevitably it'll just get balanced out by the next piece that has 150 engagements. Because over time, mm-hmm. things just balance. I anticipate in advance that there's going to be some posts that don't do well. And then I anticipate in advance that there's going to be some posts that do well. I can't always know which one's going to be which. What are your high level metrics that you track when doing this approach? Like yeah, I track, I track which content pieces generate the most traction, likes, comments, calls, all that stuff. And then I also track which groups get the most traction. So I'm measuring the groups as well that I'm sharing the content on. Gotcha. I love it. And I've seen your posts have hundreds of engagements before. So yeah, love it. Lloyd. Yep. There you go, man. Loved this it. For the audience. Absolutely. I know that you have a webinar for yes. teaching. Uh, can you go into that kind of what the, the webinar is? Yeah, it goes into the four cores which is more or less how you can take a company that's at zero and organically scale it to multi five figures per month. We talk about product market fit. If you are in the earliest days, then we talk about how to do effective outbound outreach and outbound prospecting. Then we talk more about what we just shared about today, where we hybridize your outreach with some content, which further facilitates growth. And then at the end, we talk even about hiring a team to offload it. So all organic, where we talk about how you can take something in the beginning, which might not appear to be very scalable on day one, but we build the systems around it so that it does scale. So you don't get trapped at that 10 K per month mark that a lot of people who are relying on organic do get trapped at. Yeah. Awesome. That's at attract and scale.com slash scale dash training dash opt in. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll just put it in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Lloyd, always a pleasure. Yeah. Thank Likewise. you very much. Do this again soon, I'm sure. You take it easy. All right, cheers. Bye-bye.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know I did. Lloyd is a machine when it comes to frameworks, systems, and optimizing sales processes. He's got things down to a science and the growth of his company proves it. If you have a question about this episode, ideas on what could be better, or even a suggestion on what I should talk about next, please send me an email, morgan at morgandwilliams.com. That's M-O-R-G-A-N at M-O-R-G-A-N-D as in David, Williams.com. Thanks for listening.